Father God, as we come once again to the story of this, your servant Ruth, we remind ourselves that yours is a story of love. We thank you for your We thank you, Lord, for your patient grace towards us. We thank you, Lord, for your righteous wisdom, especially when our lives can seem so confounded or confused, our world can seem to be in such disarray. We pray, Lord, that today you would bring order and peace to our thoughts, to our hearts, to our world as you speak to us through your word. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen. The story of Ruth is a story of a woman who dedicated herself in loyalty to serve with labor because of the love that she had. Love for the husband who died, love for the family of that husband into which she had married and to which she dedicated herself even after she was widowed. And the labor that was required of her, not just to provide for herself, but also her equally widowed mother-in-law. And ultimately, in that labor and through that loyalty, Ruth discovered a greater love. Not only the love of a new husband, but the love of a new Lord. The kind of love that God shows to you and I is love like no other. It's the real thing. The authentic love of God. Love that is patient, love that is kind, love that never fails. That means it is victorious. It conquers everything. That's the kind of love that is God love. Because love isn't just something that God has. It's not just something that he does. Love is who God is. 1 John 4, 8 says that God is love. And 1 Corinthians 13 tells us that the kind of love that God is is patient, persistent, kind, and victorious. God never fails. Ruth was living a life in which there were many things that could be called failures, certainly many things that could be seen as losses. And they were real losses. In fact, when we started this series, we talked about Ruth and her family living in the land of loss because they came from a place of famine into a place where there was supposed to be provision, but instead of finding provision, the men of the family died one after the other until the women of the family were all left widowed and without resource and facing the necessity in an era in which there was virtually no social, uh, uh, what do they call it, a... Uh, net to save you. You know, there were no social services through the government that you could go to as a widow or as an orphan and say, I need help. You were dependent upon the good nature of people around you. What is it that Tennessee Williams wrote? I've always depended on the kindness of strangers. You had no alternative in that environment. And so these women were left in an extraordinary hardship in that land of loss. And the option would be to go back where they came from. In fact, Ruth's mother-in-law, a woman named Naomi, a name that means pleasant, but who started to call herself Mara, a name that means bitter, because she said, God has turned against me and my life has turned bitter. She said, I better go back to Israel where I came from. But you, my daughters-in-law, you should go back to your homes. 
Not because she wanted to get rid of them did she say this, but because she knew that there was very little likelihood that they were going to be able to flourish with her. She was kind of content to just go down into the dust, but at least she would do it back at home. And when I say content, I don't mean that she was satisfied to do that, but I mean that she had that attitude that perhaps you and I can recognize, one of resignation. What's the point? What's the use? I'm going to go back to my homeland and probably die there. So you, my daughters-in-law, why don't you go back to your family and maybe at least your family can help you. What good is it going to be to you to be a stranger in a strange land, a foreigner unfavored, a widowed woman unlikely to find a husband to help her and a family in which she can prosper? Now, it was understandable that the daughters-in-law would hear that and think this is the best route for us. And in fact, one of the daughters-in-law of Naomi followed that advice. But the other was Ruth who said, no, wherever you go, mother-in-law, mother of mine, I will go with you. Why did she do that? The scripture doesn't tell us precisely why. We have to interpret that Ruth, when she had covenanted with her husband to give herself to him as a wife, she had covenanted to give herself to his family as well. And even to his God. You see, she was raised in a land that worshipped different gods. But I think that there must have been in the family of Elimelech, that is her father-in-law, and Naomi, her mother-in-law, a real recognition of the goodness of God. Maybe that family had gotten it wrong about God. Maybe they had left when they should have stayed. Well, you and I get it wrong about God sometimes, don't we? Sometimes our faith gives out, but God's doesn't. And so if there's any bit of faith left in us, remember that the witness that comes through your life of the goodness of God, even when times are tough, may very well be the thing that causes someone else to say, I want to go in the direction that you're going because I see that your God is not just your God, he's the God. He's my God too. And Ruth, she had that loyalty. She made that covenant. She followed that path. And because of that, I've termed this series the Ruth Regency. Something comes out of Ruth's life, of her dedication, even in the midst of loss, that brings forth greater goodness of God. A regency, what is it? A regency is a government or a period of time in which a person who's called a regent rules in place of a sovereign, in place of a king or queen. For instance, when that sovereign is still a little child. <laughs> Imagine for a moment, and this will blow the socks off of Marco and Rochelle, uh, that this little maverick that we just dedicated, what if he was heir to the throne? Well, he's too young to make any decisions yet, right? And so his parents could very well serve as regents for him. In order to keep that place of his authority until it's time for him to enter into it. Now, I'm taking a bit of liberty in calling Ruth a regent. Because in those days, there was no king in Israel. Remember, Ruth takes place in the days of the judges. And throughout the book of Judges, we saw, even by its concluding statement, it was an era when no king was crowned in Israel because it was to be that God was king. But in fact, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. But now here comes a foreigner, 
a woman from another land who says, instead of just doing what is right in my eyes, I want to live according to what is right in God's eyes. And I say that in doing so, God saw her and said, I will make a regent of you. I will use you to usher into the world a king. Because from Ruth, in her relationship with Boaz, that we're going to hear more about today, there will come King David. In Ruth chapter 4, which we're going to look at next time in a couple of weeks, we are told about this very specific uh, lineage. A son was born to Ruth. Spoiler alert. She and Boaz, they're going to get together. And when they do, they're going to have a child. And they're going to name him, hey, how about this? Serving. Just like the baby we dedicated today. Do you ever think that God is in charge? <laughs> Do you ever see how God coordinates things that nobody could plan or anticipate? We dedicated a child whose name means servant leader today. And we're talking about a child who was born servant leader. That was Obed. His son was Jesse. Jesse's son was David. But what we find in the gospel of Matthew, some thousand plus years later, is that the son of David is ultimately the Son of God. Yes, this is the very earthly lineage into which Jesus Christ is born. Now, not only that, but when you look at the lineage that's given in Matthew and in Luke, by the way, you can find this in both of the nativity accounts of Jesus, you will find that not only is Ruth the Moabitess part of this heritage, but guess who Boaz is descended from? Boaz was the son of Salmon, who was married to Rahab. Do you remember Rahab? She also was a Gentile, a woman from outside of Israel, who during the days of Joshua had been living in the city of Jericho and was in fact a prostitute or at least the owner of, uh, of a, a, an inn in which there was likely harlotry going on. But she said, I see that your God, the God of Israel, is the God of all the earth. And I want to give myself to him. I'll dedicate myself and my family to him. And so even though the entire city of Jericho was brought tumbling down, Rahab, who had put the rope, the sign of hope in her window that said, I belong to Israel and the God of Israel, Rahab was spared, her family was spared, but not just spared, blessed and used as a regency to pave the way for the royalty not only of Israel, but of Jesus Christ. You see, when you dedicate yourself to the Lord, you can't imagine how he might use you and everything that flows out of you to change the world. Because he's incorporating you into his story. And his story is a love story. So in Ruth chapter 1, the story began with a family that was suffering losses that threatened to obliterate their hope. But Ruth, whose name means friendship, showed herself to be the kind of friend that, as Proverbs 17 says, loves at all times, even in the hard times. May it be true of us that we would be the type of people who, instead of turning tail and running when people are in trouble, stand by and stand firm in aligning ourselves with those in need and dedicating ourselves to caring for them. I think the entire world can see right now with what's going on in Ukraine that there are periods of time when it is necessary for people who aren't directly impacted but who nevertheless say what's going on here is so egregiously against 
the way of God and the human nature that would bring blessing to others rather than destruction to say we will stand with those who are being oppressed, those who are being invaded. I don't mean to be trying to stir up some level or stance of uh, alignment that would be unnecessarily volatile, but I do think as people of God, you and I must be praying for people in crisis. Pray for people who, through no fault of their own, are being subjected to tyranny and to terror and to death. And pray how the Lord might help you to find ways to bring help to them. In fact, through Foursquare Denomination, as well as through many other charitable organizations, you can actually give resource to those who are experiencing hardship in the world today, not only in Ukraine, but elsewhere where there is hardship, because there are many troubled places in the world. But don't discount the value of your prayer. Pray and let the Lord use you to bring about a kind of love and help in the spirit that probably goes far beyond what you and I can calculate. But the eyes of the Lord see it and the heart of God cares. Through many hardships, Ruth, who was herself a foreigner in the land of Israel, consistently exhibited that she had patient trust in the Lord and that she would show that trust in care for others, like her widowed mother-in-law. And she would show it also in her willingness to work, her dedication to enter into labor. Ruth chapter 2 continued the story of how Ruth would ultimately fulfill a kind of regency, as I've described, in her patient preparation for what God would do next, God brought forth a line of kings from her. Ruth was simply just trying to provide for her mother-in-law and herself, and she was willing to go into manual labor to do it. And as she did so, the Lord led her to a place that she didn't know that there was going to be a connection there, but God knew. Because once Ruth started working in the uh, lands of this, uh, or the fields, I should say, of this generous landowner, and she came back and told her mother-in-law, Naomi, the man I'm working for has been very generous to me. His name is Boaz. Naomi was suddenly blown away. I can't, I can't believe it. This man that you're working for, he's our relative. He, he's part of the relative of my husband, Elimelech, your father-in-law. He, in fact, is our kinsman redeemer. In Israel, even though, as I said, there weren't the kind of um, social support systems that we have institutionalized in modern societies, in many cases, there was in the law of God an allowance for how people in times of crisis could be cared for. Who's going to help widows? Who's going to help orphans? Well, the kinsman redeemer was a close relative in the ancient uh, legal system of Israel who was legally empowered and even expected to bring aid when there was a family unit in crisis in their extended family. And Boaz is that. And Naomi says, I guess that God hasn't turned his back on us after all. I guess that God's goodness is still going on. If you have been in that place where you feel like, you know what, I'm ready to give up on God because it seems like God has given up on me, I pray that you have a Boaz moment this morning or this week. I pray that the kindness or goodness of God shows up for you in your life in a way that reminds you not just that God is good, but that God has never left. 
that God has never been against you. He's always been for you. And whatever he has allowed of hardship to land in your life, remember, it may very well be that some of your choices paved the way for some of that hardship. But even if your choices didn't, the Lord hasn't forgotten you. And he never will. But you could forget him. And if you do, you're far less likely to realize what's going on. So let the love of the Lord shine on you this morning. Let yourself be reminded that God is good. Let his goodness and love restore in you a sense of loyalty, a willingness to labor for the good things of God, and patient trust in the Lord in your heart. It is through these things that Ruth will receive not only redemption from the loss that she has experienced, but a legacy for a love that goes down the centuries, even into all eternity, a love that connects to the one who is love himself. Because when Jesus Christ was born into our world, the everlasting God manifest as a human being, he came so that you and I would know his love and know his life and know it more abundantly. Let's read Ruth chapter 3 together, and then I want to conclude our time by making some summary observations about it. First, there are some statements I want to say that summarize the activity of this chapter. And the first of them is this, go to him. Will you say that phrase? Go to him. One day, during this period when Ruth was working for Boaz, her mother-in-law Naomi said to her, my dear daughter, isn't it about time? Sometimes this is the role of mothers and mothers-in-law to say, you know what? I think it's about time. Let me help you, honey. I'm just going to push you along a bit. It's about time I arranged a good home for you. Well, that's the way marriages used to be. They used to be arranged. And that might sound offensive to you. But you know what? At the very least, here you have a woman who knows something about the society that they're living in when Ruth knows nothing about it. And Ruth says, I want to help you. I want to help you to have what you are hoping for in your life, a husband, children, a future. I want you to be happy. In fact, in some translations, she says, I want you to know rest. I want you to know rest. I want you to know the rest of the goodness of what God has for you in terms of its wholeness. And I want you to know the peace that God has prepared for you. And by the way, isn't this Boaz that you're working for? Need I remind you, nudge, nudge, our kinsman redeemer, our close relative, and he's the one among whose young women you've been working? So maybe it's time to make your move. You know, you have not because you ask not. Tonight is the night. A big harvest festival is about to take place. <laughs> See, Ruth's mother-in-law is also aware of this. The season of laboring in the fields is coming to a conclusion. Now is your chance to develop a relationship with Boaz that goes beyond work. Tonight is the night in which the barley harvest will be celebrated at the threshing floor. What they would do is they would actually build booths or shelters, tabernacles in the fields where the harvest could be brought in. And then at the end of the harvest, there was a great celebration and they would do it right out there in the fields under those shelters. In fact, the feast that is celebrated in that season of the year in Israel is also a feast in which we recognize the symbolism of the coming of the Messiah. It's a reminder that God is with us and God has given us this harvest. It's a, it's a Thanksgiving night and there's going to be a big party. And so Naomi says, you better dress right. 
prepare yourself. There's a little bit something here of not necessarily mother-in-law, but fairy godmother. <laughs> I want to help you be ready for the ball, Cinderella. Take a bath, good advice. Put on some perfume. Get all gussied up and go out there to the threshing floor. But don't let him know you're there until the harvest party is well underway. Don't overplay your hand, right? Look good, but don't come on too strong. Choose your moment. And when he's had plenty of food and drink, yeah, maybe not bad advice. When you see him slipping off to sleep, because they're going to actually sleep out there in the fields, in those booths, in that shelter, watch where he lies down and then go there. Yes, this is as bold as it sounds. Lie at his feet to let him know that you are available to him for marriage. Now, let me give you a side note about what's going on here. In the society in which they live, this activity on her part is symbolic. It is a way of her stating to him through the gesture that I'm interested in you and I'm available to you if you are interested in me. I once read commentary on this from, I would say, a rather theologically liberal scholar who points out that the terminology for feet in ancient Hebrew can be a euphemism, and uh, if there are delicate ears nearby, you may want to shelter them for a moment, but the euphemism could be for the genitals. So some have suggested that what is being described here is go and pull the covers off of him and let him know that you're ready to go. <laughs> is that what's going on here? No, it's not. It is perhaps tempting to think that this kind of lasciviousness would be hidden in the Bible. And I remember reading the commentator who wrote that saying, it's interesting that that's never preached in the church as though it should be. But let me tell you something. The story of Ruth is not about some hussy. It's not about a woman who has no regard for the ways of God. And the ways of God are not to be profane or perverse or in any way lascivious. And even if our society today is very flippant about sexual activity, the Lord is not. And that's not because God has anything against sex. He created it. Can you imagine a chef who doesn't like their masterpiece? God knows what tastes good. The goodness of God has provided for the intimacy of love among a man and a woman. But there is a covenant relationship that is intended. Ruth is not going against that covenant. What she is doing is symbolizing that she's ready to enter into it, that she's willing to, and willing to do so with a man who's much older than her and is not necessarily seen by the young ladies of the neighborhood as the number one choice for a husband. Whereas Ruth is a young woman and lovely. She's strong and she's virtuous. But she's saying, I choose you if you're willing to choose me. And by laying down at his feet, she's showing that she is ready to give herself in covenant to him. But it's a risk because he could turn her away. He could, in fact, be offended. Or he could say, no thanks, not interested. So there is boldness in it, but there's nothing inappropriate in it. It's a proper way for her to show that she desires a deeper relationship with him. And Naomi says, don't be afraid. He'll tell you what his response is. He'll tell you what to do. I think you can sense in Naomi's remarks that she's saying, you can trust him. He's a good man. He'll treat you right. After all, if he was the wrong kind of man, 
he could take advantage of her and do so in a way that left her debilitated in that society. But Boaz also is not a profane person, but rather a man of honor and integrity. And so Ruth says, all right, mom, if you say so, I'll do it the way you've described. And she does exactly that, goes to the threshing floor. She goes to him. She goes to him even though there's risk. She goes to him though it makes her vulnerable. She goes to him though she doesn't know exactly what his response will be because she goes to him in love and trust. And she lays at his feet. Will you say that phrase? Lay at his feet. Boaz had a good time at the party. That's what parties are for. Eating and drinking his fill. He felt great. It's a description of Boaz, but you know what? You might be surprised to hear it could just as readily be a description of Jesus. The very first miracle that Jesus ever did was to turn water into wine at a wedding feast. Jesus, the partier. That's what he was described as by those who were offended by him. By the way, he said, you don't like me because I eat and drink, but you didn't like my cousin John because he was an ascetic out in the wilderness. So really, you just don't like anything that God sends your way. But Jesus knew how to enjoy life, and so does God. And there are times to celebrate, and this was one of them. And Boaz was enjoying it. But you can only celebrate so long, and then it's time to head to, to bed, to, to hit the hay, as they say. And I guess he was going to literally do that. He goes to get some sleep. He lies down at the end of a stack of barley. And Ruth quietly follows. She lays down to signal her availability for betrothal, for marriage, to be in covenant relationship with him. She does so after he's already gone to sleep. In the middle of the night, he wakes up. How about this? You wake up, there's a lovely young woman lying at your feet. It's a shock and a surprise. How did you get there? Who's there? Who are you, he says, in the dark. It's Ruth, your maiden. Please take me under your protecting wing. You know the scripture that describes the Lord taking care of you? He will hide you under the shadow of his wing. She's saying, will you care for me? I've worked hard for you. That's been demonstrated by her life. I've trusted in the Lord. I've shown love to this family. But I need someone to watch over me. Remember that old song? Someone to watch over me. She's saying, will you watch over me? Will you hide me in the shadow of your wing? You are my kinsman redeemer, you know. You're in that circle. You have the right to marry me. And I'm giving you my invitation. God bless you, my dear maiden, says Boaz. What a splendid expression of love. In other words, he's saying, how good you are to me. You could just think I'm some old dude. You could just look at me as some old relative who maybe you can squeeze a dime out of, but instead, you want to show me loyalty and love. You could have had any of the young men around whether they were rich or poor. In other words, there were men of means who were younger and more handsome, probably. You could have had them, but you chose me. And Boaz, he had already chosen her. How do I know? Because look at the way he treated her. Look at how he cared for her. He didn't do those things because he was trying to get her. He did those things because he cared about her. 
but how wonderful it was for his heart when he found that she whom he had cared about also cared about him. And so he said, don't worry a thing. I'm going to take care of everything. I'm the one who's empowered in this society to make all the arrangements, and I will do it. I will do all that you could ask or want. Everybody in town knows that you are a courageous woman. You are a real prize. You're right. I am a close relative to you, but actually there's one that's even closer. And so in the, in the legal line of, of uh, obligation, there's one that's got a claim before me. So here's what I want you to do, Ruth. Stay here tonight. Now, again, I want to underscore, he's not doing that because he wants to cozy up to her as his little honey. What he's saying is, I'm bringing you into my household and I am covering you in exactly the way that you described. By the way, if she had left in the middle of the night, it might have raised eyebrows. Not because they were doing anything untoward, but because people expect people to do things untoward. And so he says, I want you to be protected from any gossip, and I want you to be safe through the night. Will you say this phrase, remain through the night? When you go to the Lord and you lay yourself at his altar, sometimes it seems like the sunshine that you're expecting hasn't risen yet. It's the middle of the night. There's enemies afoot. By the way, out in the fields, there would literally be thieves possible. There's all kinds of dangers and risks. There's not yet the light, but there's the voice of the Lord saying, stay here, stay with me. I'm going to do everything that you need. I'm going to fulfill every promise to you. Stay the rest of the night, and in the morning, if this other relative, Boaz says, wants to exercise his customary rights and responsibilities as the closest covenant redeemer, he'll have his chance. Here's another way in which I know that Boaz and Ruth are not up to no good in the middle of the night because look at how throughout it all they are willing to risk loss in order to continue in their covenant commitment to do the right thing. Boaz says, I love you. You're a catch and I do have the legal right to marry you and I am delighted that you have the desire to marry me but I have to honor the reality that there's someone who has a prior claim. And so I am going to do everything right to honor that and trust that the Lord will honor me. You can do that in your life. Don't ever compromise on the right thing to do because you think, well, what's best for me might be lost if I commit to keeping these rules and regulations. If it is right in the eyes of the Lord, then God will do right by you. There's times where you may really lose an opportunity because you are holding to doing the right thing, to telling the truth, to giving opportunity where it is due, and yet God will come and bring a surprising blessing to you. I promise. Now, it may take some time. There may be a night. But if you remain for the night, trusting tight in the Lord, God will reward you for doing the right thing. But if you do the wrong thing, just to get something that you want, nothing that you will be able to lay hold of will really be worthy in your hand because you cannot achieve worthiness by doing the wrong thing. God will reward those who commit to doing what's right. And Boaz says, if that other relative isn't interested, then as sure as God lives, you're going to be mine. I'm going to marry you. Now, go back to sleep. Get some rest. 
So Ruth slept at his feet until dawn, but she got up while it was still dark so she wouldn't be recognized. In other words, they were mindful of what people might say and what people might think, and she left early in the morning. And Boaz said, I don't want anybody to know that you came yet because I want to be able to do these things in the right order of steps. But he's still going to bless her. He says, bring your shawl over here. Spread it out on the floor. I'm going to fill it to overflowing with the barley grain. I'm going to bless you and your mother-in-law before you even leave today. Before he even knows whether she will be his wife or not, he knows that he is bound to bless her. And so then she goes back to town. Now, she has experienced that Boaz loves her and provides for her, and so she is going to trust and rest in his love. Will you say that phrase? Rest in his love. Ruth came home to her mother-in-law, and Naomi said, how did things go? (laughs) Well, you've been out all night. What happened? Ruth told her everything that Boaz had done for her, adding, he gave me all this barley besides six quarts. It's a huge bounty. He told me you can't go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Naomi said, sit back and relax, my dear daughter, until we find out how things turn out. What she's saying is, you've got nothing to worry about. This is a good guy. Mark my words, he's going to get everything wrapped up today. If you're waiting on the Lord, I want to remind you, he is saying, open up your shawl to me and I will pour out blessing. I'll pour out blessing into your arms. You say, I need it. All right, then open up for it and trust him to do it and trust him to move fast. Now, it's according to his timeline and according to his speed. But I promise you, God is a good God. He is going to wrap things up well for you. Trust in him and open to everything he wants to give to you. As believers today, we can follow Ruth's example because Jesus, who is in fact a descendant in the human fashion from Ruth, is also the manifestation of God, fully human, fully divine, And he is our kinsman redeemer. He is the one who, according to the law of the Lord, is able to redeem us from the losses of our life and to covenant with us into a whole new royal lineage, a legacy of love and hope. But we've got to go to him. We've got to come to him with our need and lay our need at his feet, lay ourselves at his feet, make ourselves vulnerable to him. Can you do that this morning? Can you do that today? Make your need known to him. Let your requests be made known to God, Paul says to the Philippians in chapter 4. And then stay patiently faithful in him. No matter how long the night of your troubles may be, the dark night of the soul, no matter how dark that might might seem, stay patient, resting in his perfect love. There may be sorrow for the night, but joy is coming in the morning. So let's summarize what we've learned in Ruth chapter 3, a story of love. Go to him. Don't just hear this as the story of Ruth going to Boaz. See this as the story of you coming to Christ. Go to him. He already loves you. He already chose you. Now he's looking for Is your heart set on me? 
Show him that it is. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. We heard that very recently when we went through the book of James together. James chapter 4, verse 8. Lay at his feet. Cast all your cares upon the Lord. 1 Peter 5, 7 says. Why? Because he cares for you. As Boaz loved Ruth, more so does Jesus love you. Now then, stay there with him through the night. Don't lose heart. Don't be afraid. Don't let yourself grow cold. Let the warmth of his presence warm the faith in your heart and keep the faith. Hold fast to it. Hold fast to him. Rest in his love and let him sustain you. Because the Lord is for you and not against you. He knows his plans for you to give you a future and a hope. I was reading in my devotions today and I had to add to the slides because in three different devotional programs, I found these verses and I thought only the Lord would know that I would be reading these today and look at how they correspond to the message. 1 John 3, 1. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. In the same way that we all felt love for that little child maverick that we dedicated today, the Lord looks at you as his child. He holds you in his arms the way the father held that baby in his arms this morning. And he anoints you with his love in the spirit of the Lord. Zephaniah 3.17 says, The Lord your God is here. He's in your midst a mighty one who will save you. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. When, when Boaz said, rest for the night, it's the very phrase that Naomi had used. Isn't it time that you have rest? And Boaz said, your rest is in me. And if you trust in me, I'll give you the rest of what you're hoping for too. God will quiet you by his love and he will exult over you with strong singing. He rejoices in you because he loves you. The Lord spoke to Israel and he speaks to his people today to describe you like a child that was left by the side of the road as an orphan whom he cared for, like a woman who was in need of a husband in the ancient days. And the Lord said, I came and found you and loved you. I saw that you were ready for it and I spread the corner of my garment over you and I covered you in your nakedness. I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you, says the sovereign Lord. You became mine. You and I have been bought with a price, and the price was Jesus' blood. Jesus died on the cross, not just to fulfill some religious ritual, but because he loves you so much that he gave himself for you. Therefore, Paul says, we don't lose heart. Yes, outwardly we're wasting away. But inwardly, we're being renewed day by day for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. It's just stay with him through the night. Fix your eyes not on what is seen because in the dark of the night you can't see, but on what is unseen, what you can know only through love, what you can know by faith. Because what you can see with your eyes is temporary, but what you can lay hold of by faith and know in love, that is eternal. And you will never lose that connection because he will never let go of you. I lay down and slept, said the psalmist, perhaps even David. I woke again 
In other words, I was exhausted and I came to rest and the night was long, but the night wasn't forever. I woke up and I was still alive because the Lord sustained me. And why? Because he loves you and he wants you to know his love and to show his love to others. He wants you to be a Ruth. He wants you to know that not only does he love you, but he will use you to show his love to others in ways that bring in the royal kingdom of God and bring blessing to you and through you in his mighty name. Hallelujah and amen.